I'm Chris Motz, and this is Faith in Politics. On this broadcast, we range from the soul to the state as we cultivate those virtues and explore those principles that help us live well as faithful Catholics in this great land. Well, welcome back for another episode, folks. This is a big one. You know, I mean, you guys know that, uh, so I've transitioned to a new role, serving as chief of staff to the Diocese of Sioux Falls uh, a couple months ago. And so I've been uh, staying on, keeping the ship afloat at the Catholic Conference, some very, very important uh, issues, one of which we're going to talk about today. But this is big because it's episode 100. I don't know if you guys knew that, but this is, we're on our 100th iteration of Faith and Politics. So whether you uh, have been with us since episode one, way back when with Jennifer Law, or whether you have been joining us more recently, we are glad you're here and uh, and welcome to the show. I got to say, I am really excited too. Um, you know, as I'm kind of transitioning out of the Catholic Conference, just really excited for what is in store there, folks. Don't worry. We've got, there's just a great uh, next executive director uh, that the Lord has in store. I know of it. I'm actually doing some interviews and the wheels are in motion. So hope to be able to introduce this person uh, very soon. You can pray for that intention. Also want to introduce, uh, I don't he's not mic'd up, but Casey Bassett. We got a new engineer here in town. Uh, Bill Seeley, thank you to Bill for 22 years of service. The Diocese of Sioux Falls, Bill has um, moved on to a great uh, great company in, in Sioux Falls. So we've got Casey here running the show for us now. Thanks, Casey, for joining us. But as I said, back to a really important issue. There are, um, you know, when I was transitioning, this was a couple months ago, I was stepping out of the Catholic conference role. You know, the bishops were convicted that, Chris, we need you to, to, we need you to stay in the seat um, uh, and keep a couple of issues at the fore for Catholic citizens in the state of South Dakota. And at the front of their mind is the all-important pro-life issue. This is a preeminent priority uh, for the American bishops as a body and certainly is for our bishops in South Dakota. Uh, and it's we're coming up on an important moment for the pro-life movement in the United States of America with the Dobbs case pending, which you uh, listeners know all about, I hope at this point. So welcoming uh, back to the show to kind of talk about a big occurrence um, just this last week um, is this leaked draft of the opinion. We're going to talk about it with Katie Glenn. Katie is the Government Affairs Council at Americans United for Life, an amazing pro-life organization, operates at the national level, and is also doing really great, um, largely advisory work, but really helping out uh, in the trenches at the state level too. I've been really grateful for my um, friendship with Katie Welcome back to the program. So good to be here. So Katie, uh, you are, you're an expert in this stuff. And so, you know, when it came up that this is, this is a huge thing, we, you know, Catholics, we all want to know about this. Uh, we, we want to talk to Katie Glenn is who we want to talk to about it. Cause I know you're, <laughs> you, you follow this stuff very, very closely. So maybe we could just start with Katie, what, what happened that hit the news, you know, I'm sure your phone was like mine and exploding with te- text messages. Uh, what was it? Mo- Monday night, I think. Monday night. Yeah. Yep. So um, as people are hearing this, it's just a, a little bit over a week ago, uh, last Monday night. Uh, what's what's the news, Katie? Well, I was standing in my living room and I can't even remember what the sentence I was saying was to my fiance, but I looked down at my phone because it just started dinging off the hook. And I said, uh, I-, I think we have a decision. And, you know, we just started reading it. It was so what is unprecedented about this situation is this is the first time that the press has not just sort of 
you know, written a story about whisperings outside of the court. They may do this. They may do that. We've seen that before. This was the first time where a full 98 page draft was published by a news organization. And so we all clicked on that PDF and started reading to see what was in it. Um, you know, that is what's really unprecedented about this. I expected to have a long opinion to read sometime this spring. I didn't really expect to get it from Politico at nine o'clock at night on Monday, but, you know, we just started devouring it, really trying to understand when we see Alito's name at the top, you know, you feel really good about that. He is a justice who has been strongly pro-life, really an originalist judge. And, you know, one of the cases he's the most famous for is that he actually wrote uh, the appellate court decision in Planned Parenthood versus Casey in the early 1990s. And he wrote to overturn Roe at that time. He was against abortion then. And so, you know, I think that uh, the majority of justices, if, you know, the Politico reporting is accurate, what we will see a five or six just, uh, justice majority in favor of overturning Roe uh, put the opinion in really good hands. Well, and it, I think my initial reaction was the exact same as yours because I, I just saw the headline was the first thing. And it's like, oh, there's a, deci- oh, wait, wait, it's a leaked draft, which as you say, is really unprecedented. Um, tell us, you know, a little bit about like, what are the key features of the draft itself? And I think listeners will probably be at least familiar with the fact that it would overrule explicitly Roe versus Wade. And of course, it's not formally published. This isn't said and done. It's a draft. But what are some of the key features that we see in it? So I think that's the biggest thing. Uh, If the final opinion looks anything like the draft, um, we hope that that statement, clear and unequivocal, that Roe and Casey are overturned, uh, stays in. That's one of the things that states are really going to be looking for, especially states that have a state constitutional right to life or have uh, passed, you know, what we call a conditional or a trigger law that would, you know, take effect if Roe and Casey are overturned. That statement makes it completely clear this has happened. And, you know, there was some concern if the court uh, gives an argument that's not very clear or you sort of have to read between the lines to understand it could take years to determine whether that condition has been satisfied. Uh, This very clear statement um, really helps us in that sense. And I think lots of state attorneys general, including yours in South Dakota, uh, probably they were reading this late into the night as well. I think the second big thing is that Justice Alito says that the state, so that's Congress, that is any regulatory agency, it's also state lawmakers and local lawmakers have an interest in protecting life from conception. Uh, One of the big things that Roe v. Wade did was it said that we recognize that the state may have some right to protect life at some point in pregnancy, but we're going to place it around the third trimester at 28 weeks. In Casey, they moved that forward a little bit. They said, we know that by now science has evolved, medical technology is better. So that point where the state's interest can attach is closer to 24 weeks. In this decision, Justice Alito says, the state's interest in protecting life attaches from the earliest moment. It is in existence through the entire pregnancy. And that really is what's going to open the door to states protecting life from those earliest stages and, and really preventing abortion. Well, and I want to just highlight for our listeners too, who are not exclusively, but largely in the state of South Dakota, we do have a trigger law in the state of South Dakota dating back to, uh, let's see, it's 2005, I think. And it does actually... Um, depend upon a real clarity 
in any future decision uh, that would overturn Roe versus Wade, we we need to have something really clear for this, from the Supreme Court that um, the state is is able to prohibit abortion at all stages of pregnancy, um, which this, if published, this draft would it would it would be ding ding ding. That's exactly what our our trigger law needs. So. Um, yeah. What, what about, you know, this question, and this is kind of getting into some of the, the legal stuff that I think the average layperson has a sense of, but uh, maybe hasn't read the finer points of what, you know, the Supreme court has said, but, um, going back to Planned Parenthood versus Casey, uh, so that's the early nineties decision, which upheld the quote unquote core holding of, of Roe. A big feature of that was stare decisis. I mean, they're saying like we, so you've got the what is it? It's, I think, four justices that are ready to do away with a row, two that want to uphold it, but then you have this three-member plurality that up, they uphold its core holding, even if you know at least one of them has some res- reservations about row. Um, what? How does the draft opinion that we see uh, from Justice Alito deal with stare decisis? So stare decisis is this idea that if you're going to overturn a past ruling, you need to have a really good reason. And we've got these factors that um, a court would use to evaluate whether it's appropriate to overturn um, a past decision. And, and this is the kind of thing that the court did in uh, Brown versus Board of Education. There was a past case saying that separate but equal was constitutional, that there could be separate facilities for black and white Americans, the court said this is obviously wrong. It was a misreading of the constitution and we need to write this wrong. And they went through those factors in that case and they determined, you know, we got it wrong, we have to fix it. Sorry, decisis, or this idea that we leave things alone isn't appropriate. And that's what we've been calling on the court to do for 50 years as the pro-life movement um, in this case to say that you got it wrong the first time you need to overturn it and looking at those factors um, one of the factors that got a lot of attention during the oral arguments uh, because of some questions from justice amy coney barrett uh, was talking about the reliance interest this idea that women order their lives and men too they they um, have this assumption that abortion will be available to them if they want it if they need it and they make decisions with that fact, um, you know, part of their reality. That's one of the things that Justice O'Connor wrote about quite a bit in Planned Parenthood versus Casey. You know, for 20 years, women have made decisions about their sexual life, about their education, with the idea that if they get pregnant and they don't want to be, abortion is on the table. And one of the things that Justice Barrett really pointed out in the oral arguments for this case was the world has completely changed. Um, the number of women seeking, you know, educational attainment is higher than ever. And the number of abortions is lower than ever. Yeah. We're lower than the number of abortions that there were in 1973 when Roe was first decided. You know, there was a high wa- watermark over 1.2 million abortions in the early 1990s. And it's been dropping <clears throat> for 30 years. She also talked about safe haven baby boxes and the fact that all 50 states have a way for you to anonymously and safely uh, turn over a child that you're not ready to parent. And it will put that child, you know, into a loving home. And there's no reason to have abortion as sort of the solution to the problem of choosing not to parent. Um, That's something we saw quite a bit of ink spilled in the draft. And I hope that stays in because it really speaks to the fact that abortion is not a solution 
to anyone's problems. Well, and and just kind of drawing on that too, or highlighting it, um, there is this really beautiful amicus brief from a former teacher of mine, Teresa Collette, working with Helen Alvarez and others. And I mention it because of the local interest. Governor Christine Ohm uh, signed on to that brief along with hundreds of other professional women who have attained high levels of uh, you know success in their careers and so forth, including a number of other South Dakota women that are you know doctors and dentists and lawyers and so forth. The point being that you know, we don't need abortion. Um, that that's a that's a total false flag to say that women need abortion in or, in order to attain um, some measure of professional success in their lives. Mississippi's Attorney General Lynn Fitch, who is um, you know the one leading this case, she's a single mom. Right. She is in the highest office, you know, she's the highest lawyer in the state of Mississippi and she's a single mom. Her children have enriched her life and she speaks so authentically to this. It makes her, you know, a perfect person in this moment to talk about it. Uh, look at Just- Justice Barrett, a mom right. of seven, a Catholic mom of seven, right. you know, in the highest legal job in our country, uh, women certainly can and do succeed every single day as working parents. And I think it's really, really, um, you know, the feminist movement has sold us short in saying that we can't do that. So I was glad to see that addressed in the decision. So one of the, you know, things that I think is important to just emphasize, because I think a lot of people realize this, but it's something we got to keep saying is that if Roe versus Wade becomes, uh, if it's overturned, it's not that abortion is automatically illegal or legal in any given place. Can you just just to emphasize maybe structurally, like what happens at that point and what does that mean for kind of next steps? So what Mississippi asked the court to do and what it looks like they will do based on this leaked opinion is uh, they would remove the right to abortion. They would say loud and clear, there is no right to abortion in the United States Constitution And therefore, any abortion law that a state would pass would be evaluated on the lowest level of constitutional test. We'll not go into this. You're not studying for an exam. But basically, it's most favorable to the government to restrict abortion. And so that means that states like South Dakota, um, states like Iowa, where I grew up, are going to be able to really meet uh, the desires of their pro-life population and be able to limit abortion pretty significantly, if not altogether in their state. It also means that states like California and Illinois and New York are gonna pretty much have abortion on demand without very many limits like they do now. So this is certainly not an end game for any of us who are pro-life. And even in those states where we have very few abortions, we'll still have moms and families in need to support. Uh, But the big thing here is that it opens the door to states to limit abortion like they did, you know, in their entire history up to 1973. And I think the next step would be to reaching deep and saying not only is, you know, our, our constitution isn't, you know, silent on abortion the way that um, the court is determining today, but like there is evidence that perhaps the 14th Amendment could affirmatively protect a right to life. I think that's going to be the next big challenge for us. But we should see this as a win if we get, you know, the opinion that we think we'll get based on the leak. So it's a huge, huge win. What you just alluded to is that it's not everything we want, because really what we want, ultimately, it's not a, a legal goal so much as just like a goal in human hearts that every single human person would be welcomed with love, even if their conception wasn't, 
you know, explicitly like planned or expected, but they're just generous hearts and that, that mothers in those situations uh, are also affirmed and loved. But there's, there's this kind of political legal goal of, of protection. Do you, can you say just a little more about what you just alluded to with um, affirmatively protecting the right to life through a constitutional argument? Uh, John Finnis has been one that's really, uh, I think, advanced this in, mm-hmm. in sort of the, the, the public mind. Say, say more about that. Yeah, so John Finnis and um, Robbie George and others filed briefs in this case, um, making that argument. Um, The parties didn't make that argument. So I think it's appropriate for the court to address, you know, the 10,000 pound gorilla in the room that is Roe v. Wade, um, because that's what Mississippi and and all the states that supported them asked for. Uh, But the next step really will be to show that, um, you know, even if the 14th Amendment um, wasn't explicitly written with a mind towards the unborn. You know, we know from the history it was written t- with a mind towards um, the newly freed African slaves, but it has been extended and used to apply in instances of um, rights for women, rights for other minority groups, um, rights based on age or uh, disability. Like it's been extended into these other uses. And so I think that's something that. Um, Robbie and John and others have been doing a really good job of cataloging that and demonstrating that um, there is a door open to make that argument. And, you know, we only saw what Justice Alito wrote. We haven't seen what any of the other justices write. And so I think everyone will be very interested in the concurrences filed, which is uh, the agreement opinions of the other justices. And and some of them may address this. Um, And just for folks falling along at home, pulling out their little pocket constitution. You're going to flip to your 14th amendment. Here's what it says what, in the middle of a sentence. It's nor shall any state deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. So the, the argument would be that in, in the meaning of the 14th amendment, a person is inclusive of human beings uh, from the moment of conception. That's when a human being comes into existence is at conception. Their persons would be the argument. So great. C- can you briefly... There's also this, uh, I've just been seeing this in sort of commentary from the pro-abortion camp that, oh, if if the court does this to Roe versus Wade, it totally undermines the court's jurisprudence on these other cases that would include, I mean, things that Catholics care about. And I know AUL is not, you know, Obergefell and, and Lawrence are not AUL issues, but the argument would be, well, if if you knock out the reasoning on Roe, the court is also going to take down the reasoning on these other kind of really hot potato types of issues. Alito makes clear that's not our intent. Don't go there. Do, do you have a take on that? I appreciate that on page 62, there's an entire paragraph <laughs> addressing this where he says this is only about abortion. This is not about any other issues. Uh, I've been asked this question a number of times in the last couple of days, and I just say, get to page 62. <laughs> you haven't read it all yet. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so I appreciate that he makes that very clear. He makes an obvious distinction. Abortion is different from everything else. Yeah. Because abortion is about endings, aside from the constitutional arguments that things like the marriage cases were argued under a different part of the Constitution, um, it wasn't argued under the privacy, um, you know, part of substantive due process. It was equal protection, totally separate. Yeah. But abortion is also separate because it's the only one of these things that ends a human life right. intentionally. If two people go in and one person comes out, if this is done right, 
And that's what makes it different. And yeah. Justice Alito really clearly states that in his opinion. And I think the other side is terrified of that. They don't want people thinking about it. And so they're trying to scare people by saying, oh, this will mean that there's laws against interracial marriage. Give me one state yeah. where you've got a governor or lawmakers or a public that wants that. Right. I can't think of a single one. Yeah. So this is a scare tactic and we need to totally reject it and focus on celebrating the humanity of the child. Yes. Yes. So well put. Okay. We'd be remiss. Uh, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you about this, like in terms of what does this mean for the court? Because it's significant news in and of itself, even if this wasn't a, you know, a hugely important pro-life case, the fact that there's a leaked draft of an opinion that's not been rele- released. Um, what's, what's your take on that? What does it mean for the court? Well, I think, unfortunately, it just shows that, um, you know, those norms that we <laughs> hold so dear, like confidentiality or loyalty, um, just aren't that important to some people. Mm. And I think that's so unfortunate. Um, I think that if it was leaked by, you know, a liberal clerk who's angry about the decision that could totally backfire on them because we're having this opportunity to really speak about what's in the opinion without seeing any of the dissents. So there's no headlines that are like, so the mayor smacks down Alito. Like we don't know what she has to say yet. Uh, So I think in that sense, you know, it will be a bit of a half deflated balloon when we get the final opinion for the other side. But I think it's it's so unfortunate that somebody, whoever it was, decided that um, they wanted to really break with the tradition of the court and release this. And I think it will really break down trust within that institution. Uh, And I will be paying closer attention at nine o'clock, I guess, because it's not just Mondays at 10 a.m. that we're going to be getting decisions, maybe. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think this is something we all kind of know through our civics, but that in our three branches of government, two of them are fairly immediately accountable to elections and the political process. And, but the court are these life tenure judges that yes, they're appointed by a, a politically elected president, but they're really supposed to be detached, nonpartisan. So to inject, um, this sort of, I, I don't know, the, the political lens on their internal processes is very, I can only imagine uh, how it's going to harm the trust that they have amongst themselves as they're supposed to be deliberating what does the law say and mean for us. Right, and that's exactly what this person tried to do. They wanted to inject the public and politics into what should be a judicial decision. I've already seen there's a group that posted the home addresses of all the justices online and is encouraging people to go there. Several of these justices have young children. This is meant to intimidate them, to scare them away from what we know is a just outcome. And I I hope that it spectacularly backfires and doesn't work and we see an end to this kind of tactic. I mean, I would think that it would backfire because if if they, it's like if you give a crocodile a piece of meat, he wants more meat. You know, if they they give in and maybe alter alter course, it's like, well, we got our way and we're going to do more of it. We'll do it again. Yeah. Um, I appreciate your point too, just about the concern for potentially, uh, heaven forbid, but just the safety of the justices and their families. And it's certainly something that um, all of us can pray for, um, not only for the safety of the justices, but just for the peace, uh, peace in our country. 
um, that we can, you know, just use uh, reason in the in the processes of law we have. Um, Katie, any any sense? What is the path forward for the pro life movement? Let's say we, you know, we get a majority opinion down along the lines of what we've seen. What are some of the next steps? And you, if you wanted to, you could sort of speak into South Dakota. I know you're familiar with the landscape here a bit, but just to, to the nation broadly too, what are the next steps for the movement? I think the big first step in our pro-life states will be to evaluate um, what laws have we already passed that have been enjoined by the courts that we can now go back and get those to take effect. Yep. Um, how can we, you know, the laws we passed that our voters wanted, uh, that's what we finally want to get to govern our state. And so that's going to be the first big step for most states is um, reviewing those those conditional or trigger laws, reviewing state constitutional amendments. A couple of our states have um, pro-life ballot initiatives this fall. And so I think that the temperature will definitely be turned up on those in Kansas, Kentucky, and Montana. Um, there's a pro-abortion uh, constitutional referendum in Vermont. I'm sure there will be more attention paid to that now. And then I think the next thing is, um, you know, from the law and policy side, once you've got those laws to go back into effect, is figuring out where your gaps are. What new problems have we identified? A lot of these laws were passed 10 or 15 or 20 years ago, and they've never been able to take effect. And so there may be updates needed. I know that's something that um, y'all in South Dakota have been doing this year with chemical abortion and reporting on chemical abortion. <laughs> that's really terrific. We've been glad to partner with you on that. Um, but kind of identifying, you know, how do we meet the need we have now? Because in 1992, uh, chemical abortion pills were not legal in the United States. Every abortion was a surgical abortion. Yep. So that is a massive change from 30 years ago. Yes. Even now, it's over 55% in most states um, of the percentage of abortion. It shot up like crazy in the two and a half years of COVID. Yep. And so I think that will be a big step is how do we identify our gaps? How do we fill them? And how do we walk alongside mom, baby, and family? There will still be unexpected pregnancy. We will still have neighbors in need. And the government can come in and help with that. But also each of us is going to have to do that at our own community level. Um, I, yesterday in the middle of my day, I was like, I should donate to a pregnancy center in my neighborhood. Yeah. And so I went online and I made a small donation to them and just said, keep up the great work. Like you're going to be more needed than ever. And so that's something that, you know, I think we can all do living your life in a way that makes sure people know your heart is open. Um, I have a friend who is very pro-choice who reached out to me about a year ago and said, I have a cousin who needs some help. Like, can you help me find a pregnancy center in the state where she lives? Yeah. Like, this is not the moment to spike the football and say, yeah, I told That's you right. so. Look at all the good work we're doing. Like, this is just the moment to say, yes, let me help you. And like everything that yes. we've been doing up to that point when someone asks for help is making them feel comfortable in doing it, even though they know that we know there is a disagreement on, you know, the core issue. Yeah. And I, I want to just speak to listeners for just a, a moment, Katie, because this is something that is just really important. Your point about, um, you know, what we can do in our own neighborhoods, communities, families, et cetera. Listeners, if you guys have ideas, uh, things you want to talk about or ideas that we could put into practice, I want to I want to hear from you. I want you to reach out. You can email me at uh, cmotes at sdcatholicconference.org. It's cm. OTZ at sdcatholicconference.org. We need to put our heads together. And we, I mean, this is just so incredibly important to like understand that even if the 
even if we had like complete and total legal victory, like really this is about um, a, a battle using kind of that imagery, but um, battle for hearts and in the spirit of like friendship, common citizenship and love. Um, so I think that's an incredibly important point, Katie. I thank you for, for raising it. Um, okay. We're over our time. Uh, <laughs> I have one other question I want to ask you. And uh, it's, it's, you mentioned earlier concurrences in, um, in Katie Glenn's dreams. What are the perfect concurrences you'd love to see? I'm going to ask you to speculate or what would you hope to see in some concurrences if we do get some? Well, I was really delighted by how the oral arguments went. I think each of the justices really kind of focused in on what animates them. And so I would love to see that replicated in concurrences. Uh, the chief justice spoke about international consensus and how the U.S. is more extreme than almost every country in the world on this issue. I think a lot of people online are you know, shocked by that. Um, and so I'd love to see more of that perspective. I know that um, Justice Kavanaugh spoke quite a bit about medical regulations and basic medical care. And several doctors uh, filed amicus briefs in this case, speaking about the care that their patients deserve but do not get when they go in for an abortion. So I'd love to see that aired out. Um, the reliance interest and more information about flourishing families and how children do not slow you down, they enrich you. I think there's so much toxicity in our culture speaking about how children are a burden. And I just saw, you know, a singer who said, I got an abortion while I was on tour. Couldn't let that slow me down. And I, like, what a horrific, what a horrific message to send to kids. Yeah. You can't, you can't do it. Like it's so disempowering. And so I think that getting that message out is going to be really, really important. I think anytime the court does something major, and this is huge, <laughs> um, you know, they owe people an explanation. Yeah. That's what makes them that is what makes them accountable to the people, not yes. screaming at their doorstep, but explaining here's yes. why we made the decision that we did. And so I anticipate, you know, many more than 98 pages to read when we finally do yeah. get uh, the actual decision and all of the concurrences, because all those arguments can finally be aired out. Most people don't know there were no substantive arguments in Roe versus Wade. It went up to the court on a procedural issue of who could file this lawsuit. And the court just decided to, you know, have a merits decision without any arguments on the merits. Yeah. The same exact thing happened in the, this Mississippi case. Uh, the judge in Mississippi struck it down, saying it violated Casey. The Fifth Circuit said, unfortunately, we have to agree with him. And it went to the Supreme Court. Mississippi never got to make its arguments about why its law matters until it got to the Supreme Court. Sure. And so that's what we're going to be opened up to is really getting to air these arguments and have our elected officials speak about why the humanity of the child is important, what the reality of an abortion procedure is and how horrific it is and what it does to degrade our medical profession. And, uh, you know, just the humanity of the child, the danger to the mother, all of these things that we know and talk about we're actually going to get a public platform for. Yeah. And so I'm very excited for that. Well, we can't, we can't wait to see the, the final decision as well as concurrences. Um, until then, you know, everybody just keep praying. And uh, Katie Glenn, thanks for joining us on the show today. Thank you. Hey, listeners, thanks. You were just tuning in to Katie Glenn. She is Government Affairs Counsel at Americans United for Life. We were talking about this big leak uh, out of the Supreme Court on the Dobbs decision. 
Future episodes, there's kind of this thing in South Dakota that we need to talk about in the future. Uh, local news reported the other week about South Dakota women going just over the border to Laverne, Minnesota to uh, obtain telemedicine uh, abortions. This is a problem that has a legal component to it. Hope to talk about this in a future episode. As always, don't hesitate to reach out. See Motes at sdcatholicconference.org. Until next time, live well.